0: You're listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. The Dealmaker's Edge highlights the stories, struggles, and successes behind major commercial real estate investors. You'll get a behind-the-scenes look at commercial real estate leaders and their unique edge. We hope you'll follow along for regular episodes, highlighting exceptional voices of the commercial real estate industry and beyond. Dear, welcome, we're really excited to have you on today. Your story is fantastic and we intend to get it out of you today for our listeners. Um, Let's start off with your personal background. If you wouldn't mind sharing a couple of minutes, two to three minute overview of just where you grew up, where you went to school and how you got started in commercial real estate.
1: Yeah, uh, sure, so um, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, And yeah, I'd love to share um, uh, my story, the Fairpoint story. Um, So I I grew up in uh, the southern part of Israel, uh, which is called Omer. It's a town near 'er Beersheba. And just after the uh, army service uh, that I was uh, on the uh, patriot system in the Israeli Air Force for about six years, um, I went to the IDC, uh, what they call today the Reichman uh, University. And post-university, it was about 2000. Uh, it's actually not post-university, on the second year of of the university, um, I just got really bored. And after having like 120 soldiers in the army, I felt at the age of the early 20s that I've done so much. And then you just finish the army and you're like, so what do I do now? I mean, I'm I'm so used to take care of others. And so you feel so uh, selfish just thinking about your degree and what you're going to learn in education. So I had to do so many stuff meanwhile. And one of the things I've done was buying um, uh, residential real estate out of foreclosed auctions in um, Memphis, Tennessee, in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's how we got into, uh, um, that's how I got into real estate. And in 2012, I opened Fairpoint um, as a company just to do that uh, more easily. And we had friends and family, uh, many friends from the army that joined us uh, to purchase some of that, um, of some of those foreclosed assets. And, and after a year or so, uh, we thought, so this is nice, but how do we actually start to build a company? How do we get this where we can actually manage properties, receive management fees, be better at what we do, think about the market? And so our, our entrance to commercial real estate, uh, to your question, Aaron, was, in June 2013, uh, when and that was the point, we decided enough of residential real estate. We want to build something bigger, and we started with a deal in uh, northern Mississippi, actually Horn Lake, Mississippi. It was an auto body shop with nine years on the lease, and that was our first deal, 1.4 million dollars.
0: <laughs> it's a great deal. And I'm sure you've uh, <laughs> since moved on from that transaction, given your background <laughs> um, So you got started in that way. And then tell us about the earlier years of PowerPoint. It's, you know, obviously where you are today is much different, but the earlier part of your career and the, the first part of PowerPoint's evolution, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. So I think, I think it's um, many, many things um, change all the time. There's a lot of struggle to understand um, how, can, how can you actually be, uh, what do you do? What is your edge? How do you create corporate culture in the early days? Um, and how do you actually reach investors and and feel, you know, be true to your investment thesis and, and you have no track record. So building a track record without any track record, uh, especially coming from Israel and, and talking to banks, local banks, for example, in Memphis, That was a real uh, challenge. How do you get a bank to invest with you? You know, uh, young Israeli guys are coming to visit the States and trying to take a loan from a community bank in Memphis to do a commercial deal with investors from the other side of the world. The bank would say, hey, Adir, if I need to get my loan back, how do I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think um, every time we had a challenge, uh, it gave us um, a lot of strength to think, how do we cope with that? Who, who what do we need to know better it's like it's like a pain that you feel that pain and you really want to go beyond that. you want to make sure that um, you understand what you've done wrong and so for us, it was you know how do we get into accredited investors to ease our our, our fundraising? How do we start vehicles? that we can fund them and have discretionary funds so we don't need to raise money every time. How do we get deal flow? How do we create this network of brokers? Uh, specifically in early days, it was Memphis and Atlanta that would, that would be reliable even though we're out-of-state buyers. Uh, and so all those questions came up and uh, I think uh, the most important thing is, is really easy for, I mean, if I had to choose one thing that really helped us go through, uh, was staying true to your word. When you talk to people and do what you said you're going to do. And when people see that time after time, they take that in. And I remember the first time we met a great, uh, there was a great, there's a great bank Capstone, out of Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And there's a great guy that leads the commercial real estate, uh, Lee Hunter. And we met him in 2016. And he said, you know, I, I thought you guys are going to make, uh, 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 you make it challenging, but it was so weird. You guys just did what you were saying you're going to do. And it wasn't obvious for, I know, for Lee that uh, we're going to do that. And again, that's another great relationship that came out of that.
0: Well well said, well spoken. Speaking, you know, sticking to your principles, being honorable, being honest in business, that, that's a reputation management tool for a lot of exactly. success. Fast forward to today, you have major institutional partners, you have major infrastructure, you're on a buying tear. And it seems like those growth years between 16 and today really Positioned you, and you kept pushing through those struggles. Tell us, as long as we're on the struggles, I know people who are building their own empires always want to hear a little bit more. Any specific adversity other than what we've talked about? You know, specifically how you overcame it. That would be really good to hear. How you maybe made the transition from smaller investors to more accredited to now institutional. I know a lot of our clients tend to tend to make that graduated approach.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the way I, I, I you know we thought about it in that was evolving over the years, and it's always evolving. I think it's very much about being open-minded. I think many people are close-minded. They, they seem open-minded, but they, they don't allow themselves to really be challenged with their views. And all along, I think we were open to understand uh, there's much more we don't know than we know. And when technology came in and Israel is Full of technology stories. I don't live now in Israel. I'm, I'm in, I'm in New Jersey, but it's just you're thinking this is gonna, this is gonna hit real estate. Is it hit, uh, uh, you know, the finance world? as it hit insurance? And it, it's coming to you. And I think open-minded, being open-minded about how to, you know, structure things differently in terms of uh, vehicles, you know, fund vehicles. What, how does, you know, others think about your business? Was very, very crucial. And so one thing would. Is is being open-minded. And the other thing that I think helped us understand better how to build what we want to do is to put ourselves in the shoes of the investors or in the shoes of whoever you're buying the property from and really think how this is going to play out. And so when we started raising institutional money, um, you need to understand it's a whole different animal. And if you're coming with the concepts of high net worth individuals or family offices, and those same concepts don't always or don't most of the time don't apply to institutional investors. So you got to play that game. The amount of time I spend playing, uh, you know, the, the, the game with somebody else playing uh, the, the, the investor and we're thinking between ourselves all the time for hours and hours, what could happen? What happens if, if somebody says uh, the, uh, the investment thesis is not good and this or that way? Do we have proof to show that? Wait, if we don't have proof, maybe we need to double check ourselves and, and be very open-minded while you're thinking about your investment thesis. Think how could you be really challenged and what would be your answers and be very calm about knowing your subjects, talking about about them very fluently with a lot of, you know, surety of what you're actually saying, but being able to listen and to think what really, what is really important for the other side. And we had many, many mistakes. I think if you, you know, you, you asked about some struggles we have. So like the first institutional investor like gave us, there was a nice email, I remember that, that a phone call came after that email saying, can you sit down? We want to we wanna let you know what, what, what happened. I was like, yeah, I'll sit down. And then email came through saying, uh, well, you guys got a $45 million investment. And I was so happy to see that email that we actually got our first $45 million investment. And during the due diligence process, like two days before the investment committee that would really sign that up, it fell through. And it, it fell through because our due diligence materials were not good enough, because we couldn't uh, provide good enough answers to answers we knew, but weren't set up. And we learned so much uh, out of that stuff, and, and I, but I was devastated. And, yeah, you know, going back into the office, looking at the faces of all of the employees, thinking, well, this didn't go through, what's next? And, yeah. and just, you know, getting up and doing it again.
0: Speaking of which, you've really done a great job of predicting what's next. You, you hit on tech. And I think a lot of what it comes down to is of of all the investors I've interacted with, you really, really seem to be thinking about tech in a tremendously creative way, not as an add-on to the business, but almost sort of as the business itself, equally as much as the bricks themselves. I I really am impressed by that. Maybe you can share your overarching view of tech, how you implement tech, um, how you think that gives you an edge over other investors. That's really where I think you're really standing out in today's market.
1: So, yeah, I mean, that's something that is super exciting and I never thought I'll deal with that. I think the the, the story has you know unfolded um, slowly for us as we started to understand that really commercial real estate in its essence is one of the last sectors that are still not disrupted. And you can see what Lemonade has done to the insurance market and you can see uh, Pagaya, uh, which is a fintech company going into a SPAC two weeks ago with $8.5 valuation as a fintech company that has a marketplace with real assets. And so you see this revolution in in disrupting the traditional sectors, and real estate somehow is is staying um, pretty untouched. And I think that as we understood that this is coming, we thought, how can we take advantage of the fact that we're thinking of ourselves as open-minded? that we have this ability to uh, engage with uh, tech people and understand better how they can help our business. How do we take that into our edge and create this long-term edge in our business? And so we do industrial real estate. So we're thinking about everything in, uh, in the scope of industrial real estate. And when you think about some of the basic things, not just industrial real estate, but real estate as a whole, like take, for example, comps. Okay, when people are using comps to understand the value of an asset. So you would call your buddy in Dallas or somebody that works for you in Dallas and he said, hey, listen, I want to buy this building. What do you think it's worth? So he's going to bring you combs, right? That's one of the things he's going to do. How can you actually expect for a person in 2021 to be able to understand all of the data that is changing and affecting Dallas every day and actually asking him to say, what would be comparable? How could he compute in his head those things that it gives you, and the effect of, for example, Amazon opening new delivery stations next to that, and how that affects pricing, the infrastructure that is being um, uh, invested nearby, p- population change, growth, migration, you know, people in, in a certain income that care more about Amazon or care less about Amazon, and all of that has things to do with the potential of that if that comp is good or not. So like the comp system is outdated, so much stuff and so much data. Is going through our, uh, you know, through our lives that affects real estate, that using combs doesn't mean any, anything else. And, and another short example is, is rent growth. How could someone, without computing all the data, say something smart about rent growth in three years? And so when you have technologies like AI, not to use those technologies to understand better how to underwrite the property is, is, is i think it's a mistake and i think uh, not many real estate players are seeing that out there and if someone thinks about getting into real estate and actually buying assets but using technology tools to do that better i think that's the greatest opportunity today in, a, in real estate as a whole so what we've been doing to capitalize on that opportunity we've built an in-house team of r&d with you know ai people and, and software engineers and stuff like that and what we've done is we've taken a lot of data, we cleaned it up in some of the markets we're working on, and we're, looking, uh, we're running uh, AI algorithms to understand how we can predict rent growth. How can we predict better pricing? How can we say something smart about what's going to happen tomorrow based on the past and based on trends and, and regressions? And so we take that into our normal underwriting, and basically it helps us to expedite our acquisitions. And just for example, last year we've done 200 uh, um, a million a year. This year we're doing 600 and, and that's $5 million per property. So we're looking at 150 properties to purchase a year. It's, it's like three properties a week. And next year we're looking to do 1.2 billion. You cannot buy 1.2 billion a year, which is, you know, so many, uh, like 240 properties without having to streamline your data to take better decision-making while maintaining the quality.
0: Well said. I know we've worked on some stuff and I know you're also very active in acquiring companies that help you in your core business as well. And you're taking a holistic view as to how you can actually add value to the tenants by applying some of the, you know, important data that you that you have in your hands. So it's really wonderful to watch. What about just getting deals done today? Obviously you have the tech infrastructure, you have a tremendous team, uh, you have the backbone and you have the capital. But even with all the tech in the world, there is the reality of the market. Industrial has been white hot now for, for a tremendous long period of time. In, in today's market, how are you getting it done?
1: So it's, you know, we are always uh, contrarians. And when we started doing some more industrial real estate in 2015, our type of industrial real estate, which is assets below 200,000 square feet, we were contrarians. Nobody understood why we we're buying the small assets in 2015. And that's how we like it. If the fundamentals are there, the market ca- a cap is there. We prefer to be uh, contrarians and and you know do our thing, but somehow we became you know in the spotlight and and today uh, last my industrial real estate is interesting. So so I'll just say that um, if we if we saw if we the market today, it's, it's you gotta you gotta be very sophisticated today to go into it and to actually get good returns. I think that the reason we're getting we we, we can hit our investment target is. A, because in the markets we work in, we have local offices, and so we're very well connected to the uh, brokers community, to local owners. And, and so being local and not being, you know, running anything from New York or from Tel Aviv, being able to have that uh, local network is very important. And what we've created, we've created a, basically it's a single buyer marketplace. So many of, or all of our, or I guess about 90% of the partners we work with, our brokers and, 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 and such, are integrated into our platform. And when they want to send us a deal, they would send it through the platform. And by sending it through the platform, then it would, they know that we can, uh, within six hours, let them know if it's a good deal or a bad deal. If we can buy it or not buy it, and we're just going to be saving out of time. And when they up, when they upload it in the certain format they upload it, it allows us to underwrite things almost automatically. So I think that the risk. Reason- we're able to do that is because our partners know we're gonna, we are gonna. can buy fast, we can underwrite almost immediately. We're, we're As you said, we're, we're backed with the capital through our discretionary funds and credit facilities. And so we created this system that the only thing it knows how to do is to buy this kind of assets. If you bring me a 400,000 square foot asset, system doesn't know how to eat that. It's going to take more time. Uh, and so if you're trying to run across all types of assets or across everything in industrial, you're going to have a hard time. You're gonna be focusing. So I think uh, focusing on what we do is it gave us the edge because of what I said, and also because it's less of an institutional product by itself. You won't see the Blackstones of the world buying a four million dollar product. They look at things larger than twenty or thirty. So while we have the ability to purchase those smaller stuff with less, you know, heat being wasted, then we can actually aggregate those assets into a portfolio and enjoy a portfolio premium as the aggregators.
0: Terrific answer. Thank you for that. And I think that's absolutely right. It's sort of a niche within a niche will always yield its yeah. results. And we're talking about the edge in the market and the technology and everything else. But the fact is you also you have to deal with a massive team. You're, you're overseeing a very large operation. How do you deal with just day to day mental edge? You know, how do you manage your stress? What do you do to relieve stress? You obviously have a big picture you're executing on, but you're fiduciary for a lot of capital. And a lot of people are looking to you for leadership. So how do you get your mental edge day-to-day and month-to-month and year-to-year and how do you think about that aspect of your career?
1: So probably the uh, most complicated question in this podcast now. <laughs> it's one of those questions that it's how to stay. I, I wish I had winning formula. That is the truth. I think I'm still working on that winning formula. I think that um, meditating like um, once a day, 10 minutes before I go to sleep really allows me to think about things, go to sleep much more, eased. I try not to take my phone with me when I actually go to the bedroom. I move to the States so I won't have to walk until 1 a.m. every day just because of the time differences and, 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 I, and I think it's also important to spend more time with the family, being disconnected as much as you can when you actually do that. And so I think to really have good mental health it's a combination of what are you doing with yourself in your spare time to make sure you're not running too too fast and you're going to get exhausted and the other thing is making sure you have a talented team i think a talented team is like number one number one uh, important ingredient in having your own mental health because if you have to run things for others you got to replace them and if you have others that are smart and talented they there's so much if there's a problem that comes out there's going to be three people before you that can give smart answers and and, and replies and things that would only be very, very important would come to you. Uh, and it's, it's, it's also important as an organization you know, to have that uh, flow and allow people to take that responsibility, but it's also important for your mental health to be off your phone for some time.
0: Really well said, okay. I couldn't agree with you more on that front. Um, and I also put my <laughs> phone downstairs for the record before I go to bed. Um, we're gonna wrap, but is there anything else you think we've not covered you'd love to address I'm sure everyone listening to this is going to be learning a lot. Any other notes you want to throw in as far as any broader life lessons or commercial real estate advice?
1: I think that uh, we're entering a really interesting era in, in thinking about a combination of uh, technology and real estate, and not just in industrial, in any other asset class. And I think that the real estate community uh, you know, should more and more embrace some of those changes some of them would be, I think, more complicated to embrace and some less, you know, like changing the systems of, of comps and how we think about research and how do we implement AI. But I think it's an opportunity to everyone in the field and outside the field to really join this revolutionary, you know, times in, in, in you know, in our day-to-day lives. So I guess that's the only thing.
0: Adir, thank you for joining us today on The Dealmaker's Edge.